So as we continue in our class on evangelism, today we're going to be talking about the gospel. So it's crazy. We're now on our third class into this core seminar, this equipping class, and we're just now getting to the gospel, the message that we have to proclaim. So this morning, the hope is that we can make it clear what we are to share when we are sharing the gospel. Does anybody know what holiday we celebrated yesterday? Juneteenth. That's exactly right. So on June 19th, 1866, Union Army General Gordon Granger landed in Galveston, Texas with an announcement that all persons enslaved in the state of Texas were henceforth freed from their bondage. Juneteenth, as of yesterday, now a federal holiday, commemorates the emancipation of enslaved African Americans in the United States. But the astute historian will know that Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in what year? 1863, and the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, passed by Congress, passed when? 1865. So we wonder, okay, 1866, hadn't they already been declared free? What's up with this? Why weren't they walking freely? The message had not yet reached them. And so as we think about this holiday, Juneteenth, we had these people who were enslaved in bondage, and yet they remained in slavery for several years after they had been declared free. The message had not yet received them. And so the message was only as good as it was if it had been heard. I like to think about the gospel in the same way. There's many people walking around in bondage. They're in bondage to their sins. And if they do not hear the gospel message, they're going to remain in that bondage. I think Juneteenth, it's a a beautiful picture of this reality, that unless you hear the message, you remain in your bondage. And so as evangelists, we want to equip you with the right tools to properly, clearly, and actively proclaim what the gospel is. And so this morning, the hope is to equip you with the most important tool in your evangelism, a clear understanding of the gospel. So even though last week we were, um, we were reminded that because of God's sovereignty, a person's acceptance or denial of the gospel is not ultimately dependent on how persuasive we are in telling it, we still want to be faithful in being clear. Before we can share the gospel, we must ensure that we know the gospel ourselves. So this morning, as you'll see there on your handout, I want us to consider three points regarding the gospel. Believing the gospel, knowing the gospel, and sharing the gospel. Can I get a volunteer to stand and read for us those three verses, excuse me, four verses, 1 Corinthians verses, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 4? Thanks, brother. Why do you think Paul reminds Christians of the gospel? As Christians, we should know the gospel, right? So why does Paul say here, now I would remind you, as he writes to Christians, of the gospel? Any thoughts on that question? not afraid of silence. What importance does the gospel bear for the Christian? Why does Paul start here? That's exactly right. So Mitzi says, uh, Mitzi says that we are prone to spiritual amnesia. We are forgetful creatures, and so we can quickly forget the gospel. 
As Paul says, Mitzi pointed out, the gospel is of first importance, and so we are to remind ourselves often. You see, the gospel, it's not like some sort of rainy day fun that we just tuck away in our pockets and forget about. It's something that Paul even writes here, something by which we stand in. It's something that we have received. It's something that we have to actively remember because in remembering it, we're compelled to share it. And so I think it's essential that we start there, that we remember and recognize that Paul is reminding the Corinthians of the gospel that they have received and in which they stand. Internalizing the gospel daily will aid in our evangelism. And this begins by remembering that we are products of grace. In Mark 7, Jesus heals a man who is deaf and has a speech impediment. After the miracle, Jesus charges both him and those who witnessed the healing to not tell anyone. What did they do in response? They went and they told everyone. The text says that they zealously proclaimed. Those who had received God's grace, though it wasn't salvific in this sense, were zealous to proclaim it. They couldn't help but share with others. You know how it is whenever you try that new restaurant or you see that new movie and you want to tell all your friends about it because it has profoundly impacted you and you want others to experience the joy of that new food, that new movie that you had just seen. You want to share it with others. Friends, if you're in Christ this morning, you have been transferred from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved light. You are a child of wrath, but you have been made a son and a daughter of the king. You were dead in your sin, but you have been made alive together with Christ. You are a rebel, but now you are marching toward victory. You were like those slaves in Galveston, Texas, who had not yet heard the message and were still in their bondage. But upon hearing it, upon hearing that they had been emancipated, walked freely. Notice how Paul talks about his own life as a product of God's grace. In Ephesians 3, 8, and 9, he writes, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul describes himself as the least of all saints. And yet, because he is a recipient of God's grace, because he is a product of God's grace, he is eager to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. We are committed to sharing the gospel as evangelists. I look in this room and I see that we are, at least from what I know, all of us are Christians. We're all believers in Christ. And so as Christians, we are recipients who should be eager to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we share the gospel because God was first committed to saving us by grace. And it is that grace that compels our evangelism. So first, we must remember we are entirely products of grace. Just like Paul, we were the least of all the saints, and yet the Lord extended his grace to us. And it is that grace that then compels us to share the gospel. We must reflect on how grace compels our evangelism. I want to flip over really quickly to uh, Exodus chapter 20. If you want to, you can flip there really quickly. Exodus is the the second book of the Bible following Genesis. This is probably a familiar passage to many of you. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. You see the subheading there, the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. And then in verses three and following, he goes on to share the 10 commandments. In that section in the 10 commandments, the Lord is calling Israel to covenant faithfulness. But before he calls them to covenant faithfulness, what does he say? He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So what is that call to faithfulness preceded by and based upon? It's not a rhetorical question. Grace, that's exactly it. I think sometimes we look at the Ten Commandments and we think, okay, 
God has given this people a law so that they can follow it, so that they can know it, and so that they can obtain salvation. But the ordering is actually flipped here. We have to correct our understanding based on what Scripture says. And Scripture says, hey, the the gracious, merciful God of the universe, he looked at you, a people who were enslaved in Egypt. He looked upon your helpless state, and he redeemed you out of bondage. He delighted in you. He chose to save you. And now what? Now, here is a call to covenant faithfulness in the commands. And so too it is for us. We are those who have been pulled up out of our sin, saved by God's grace. And so our obedience, including our evangelism, is based upon that grace. We have to remember that grace often. As Mitzi said, we are prone to forgetfulness. But by remembering God's grace to us, we can't help but respond in obedience. Just as that uh, grace was motivation for Israel's obedience, so too it is for us. You think about a fresh-baked, hot-out-of-the-oven, melt-in-the-mouth chocolate chip cookie. That cookie compels you to go to the fridge and pour a glass of milk to accompany your indulgement of that sweet, that buttery, that rich, that chocolatey cookie. How much more then, friends, this is a silly metaphor, but how much more, friends, does God's grace compel us to walk in obedience to him? How much more does it compel us to share with others the news of their emancipation from sin and guilt? Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 records the wonderful assurance of how God's grace compels us to our good works. Paul says that those who have been saved by grace have good works that God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Those who have been saved by grace can walk in the confidence that God has already prepared our response beforehand, a response which includes our evangelism. So we must remember that. We are products of grace, entirely products of grace. That grace compels our evangelism, and that evangelism is undergirded by love. That's our third point here. We are products of grace. That grace compels our evangelism, and that evangelism is undergirded by love. The purpose of this section as we talk about these things is to recognize that unless the gospel is sweet to ourselves, unless we recognize, remember, and understand the gospel as Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, we're likely not going to share it with others. So even if we know it, we have to first be changed. We have to recognize how much we ourselves have been saved. And ultimately, that evangelism is undergirded by love. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 37, um, we see a wonderful description of the Lord Jesus' love for others. The text writes, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What do we notice about Jesus in this passage? What is his first response to seeing those who are harassed and helpless? He sees them in their sin, and he recognizes that they need a shepherd. Jesus sees these sinners not as wicked people deserving retribution, but as lost sheep, sheep who are harassed, sheep who are helpless, sheep who are vulnerable. Now, these lost sheep certainly are wicked. They certainly do deserve retribution for their sins. And yet, in our evangelism, our heart posture must reflect Christ. We should see them as those who can give over their lives to the good shepherd to guide them, to care for them, to lead them. And so I wonder, when you encounter sinful people, what is your first thought? When you see them flamboyantly flaunt their sinful lifestyles, how do you respond? Do you think of and see them as harassed and helpless, vulnerable sheep? Or do you immediately condemn them in, their, in your heart? As we're going to discuss later this morning, do you see them like Jonah, 
who when commanded to preach repentance to an evil, wicked people in Nineveh, said, oh God, I am upset that you sent me here because I know that you're merciful and gracious and that you save even wicked sinners. As Christians, we must not allow pride to seep into our hearts and to see sinners as anything other than those who are harassed, those who are helpless, those who are vulnerable, and those who need to hear this gospel message. We need to pray, as 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, that the love of Christ would control us. You can pray that prayer each day this week as you wake up in the mornings. Pray, oh God, this day, would the love of Christ control me? Would you help me endeavor to be an ambassador for Christ? Again, we can know the truths of the gospel all day long, but unless we remember God's work of grace in our lives, we will be like a fire consuming dry wood, bright and energetic for a moment, dead and quiet the next. We can know that honey is supposed to taste sweet, but until we dip our finger into the honey and coat our mouth with a gracious helping of that wonderfully viscous and delightfully sweet nectar, we cannot say that we have experienced honey. Oh, friends, taste and see the gospel. Taste and see the grace that you have been given. Taste and see that the Lord looked upon your helpless, sinful state. Taste and see that you too were harassed, you were helpless, you were vulnerable, and yet the good shepherd came alongside you, pulled you out of that, he redeemed you from the pit, and now he entrusts you to share the gospel. So as we consider that, we must then proclaim the gospel clearly. Before we move on to our next point, knowing the gospel, I want to open it up if you have any questions. I'll pause periodically throughout to to ask for questions. So if along the way there's anything I say that's unclear or there's anything that just naturally arises as a question, you can feel free to write that down so that when I pause, you can be ready to ask. Any questions at this point? All right, let's move on to knowing the gospel. So as we see here in our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, after Paul reminds the Corinthians of the gospel, which he preached to them, which they have received, in which they stand, and by which they are being saved, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so according to these verses, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners, was buried, rose from the dead, and offers a response to those who wish to be saved. I want to briefly unpack each of these phrases, but I also want to close by going over the well-known schematic God, man, Christ, and response so that we can make sure to cover all of our bases in knowing the gospel. If we tell people that Jesus died for sins and rose from the grave, we have told them good news. But it lacks some of the details they need to make sense of the message. The hearer might hear it and say, well, who is Jesus? Why should I care about him anyway? What are sins? Are you sure that I'm a sinner? Why did he die? Why did this Jesus die for my sins? How can I receive this message? And so it's important that we unpack these phrases. Let's consider the first one. Why do you think that Paul begins by stating that Jesus Christ died for sins? He could have started any number of places. He could have started with God at creation. He could have started with man's condition. Why do you think he starts with saying that Jesus Christ died for sinners? That's it. What's the good news of the gospel? That Jesus Christ died for sinners like you and me. He's going straight to the heart of the gospel. In an oversimplified sort of way, the Bible is a grand story 
that seeks to answer this main question. How can a sinful people dwell again with the holy God? Once Adam descends into sin and passes that sin on to the rest of humankind, we're left with that question. How in the world will a sinful people dwell again with the holy God? And here in this phrase, Jesus Christ had died for our sins, we catch a glorious glimpse of the answer. Man, though initially created good and experiencing fellowship with God, has sinned. And that sin has been passed on to all of mankind, thus separating them from God. You see, even as Paul says in Romans, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans 5, Paul talks about how Adam, as our federal head, passes sin to the rest of mankind. Thus, the only way that a holy God can again dwell with an unholy people is through the death of a righteous one for our sins. God, because of his profound love for his creation, sent his son Jesus, who is fully God, fully man, into the world. And in this world, he lived a perfect life and willingly died on the cross in the place of ruined sinners. In short, Jesus, the holy son of God, willingly went to the cross in the place of sinners and took upon himself the punishment for our sins that we deserved. Romans 6.23 says that the wage, what we have earned for our sin, is death. But the Lord Jesus took that full cup of God's wrath that we earned for our sin. Yes, John? Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, the mystery of the gospel, that's what you're picking up on. That Jesus would take on flesh, that the gospel would be available to more than just the Jews. Confounded by that. Yeah. 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 That's exactly right. Well, and that's why recognizing, remembering what we've been saved from should cause us awe. We should be confounded by that, that God would take on flesh himself and die for all sinful people so that those who are his elect would turn to him in faith. Did you want to say anything more on that, John? Yeah. As we know, this Jesus who died, the one who died for our sins in our place, he didn't remain in the grave. And so Paul moves from Jesus Christ dying for our sins to Jesus rising from the dead. In Jesus' resurrection from the, from the grave, three days later, he demonstrates his kingly rule over sin's greatest weapon, death itself. And he thus demonstrates the wonderful reality that God's wrath for sin had been satisfied and that death no longer has any hold on God's people. Jesus' resurrection from the dead and ascension to heaven completed his work of salvation and thus ensured a future of glorious union for all of God's children who trust completely in the Son's work. Whether Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. All who look to God in faith can be saved. But that begs the question that Jesus died and rose from the dead is good news, but it demands a response. We don't passively receive God's gift of salvation. We receive it as a gift by faith. The work of Christ's death for sin and resurrection from the dead demands that we respond. If you notice there in 1 Corinthians 15:1, Paul says that the gospel was received by the Corinthians. They responded to God's work of grace through the Lord Jesus and believed in his work as sufficient to cover their sins. All those who trust in God by faith will be justified. That means they will stand right before the throne of God. Rather than seeing their sins, God will see Christ's righteousness. We will be cleansed from our sins. Our heart of stone will be made into a heart of flesh. Our rebellious heart of disobedience and deceit will be the same heart on which God's righteous law is written. And again, rather than seeing our sin, For all those who look in faith to Christ's completed work, God will see 
Christ's righteousness. Now, in one way or another, we've talked through some of those points of God, man, Christ in response from this explanation of the gospel from 1 Corinthians 15. But even as John points out, there are endless glorious truths to the gospel. And so I want to explore them through this schematic of God, man, Christ response so that we can consider each a little bit more in detail. How many of you, by a show of hands, have heard of or know this, um, this tool, God, man, Christ response in sharing the gospel? And so the majority of you? All right, Josh, you're in luck. You're in the right place. We're going to talk about it this morning. Before we do, though, I want to take a moment to speak to God, man, Christ response as a tool for sharing the gospel. I say that it's a tool because it can helpfully, it can help us articulate the gospel, but don't be fooled, it is not the gospel itself. Restating theological truths about who God is, what man's condition is, what Christ's work does, and what our response entails is a fine way to articulate the truths of the gospel, but divorced from what the scriptures actually say about the gospel, it is powerless. After all, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, not the word of man. And so in our evangelism, we must be sure to bathe our presentation in what the Bible teaches, not just in mere kind of theological knowledge. But I also say that because I think, um, like think about a, a surgeon going into surgery. He asked for a scalpel and the tech hands him a drill instead. What use of that is it to him? Think about a seamstress who asks for a zipper and instead is given Velcro. It's not much use, right? And so as we share the gospel, it's not always just going to be this kind of rote, mechanical rearticulation of what we know. We're responding to what people's questions are. We're responding to what God's word says. Every conversation is going to look different. And so the hope of having this kind of tool belt of God, man, Christ response is so that as we engage in conversation, we have the right tools to to pull from to engage in that conversation. Maybe somebody asks one of those questions, well, yeah, I understand that God is holy, but I'm not a sinner, so like it's no problem. Well, then we need to be able to speak to man's condition. We need to understand what the Bible teaches about sin, and we need to properly correct them in that way. Maybe this person says that, oh yeah, that's cool that you trust in Jesus as your savior, but I trust in any of these other number of things as my savior as well. Great, you'll get to heaven, I'll get to heaven. Whenever we meet each other there, we'll give each other a high five. No, we need to be able to respond to them from God's word and say, no, the Lord Jesus Christ's work is unique and it is the only way to the Father. The Bible doesn't have a category for reaching God apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I say that to say that we have to be able to respond in conversation about these things. We can't just expect to go up to a non-believer and kind of slap them with God, man, Christ response and trust that they'll turn and be saved. Though, because God is sovereign, he can use even our meager attempts at evangelism. So don't hear that, that it ultimately rests on how persuasive we are, but it ultimately rests on God. Let's unpack each of these statements. God, It's impossible to list all the characteristics of who God is, but as it relates to the gospel, I want to highlight his role as an eternally holy, just, and gracious creator and sustainer. Deuteronomy 33, 27 describes him as the eternal God. Psalm 90, verse 2 proclaims, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 1 Timothy 1.17 describes him as the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. And because God is eternal, he never changes. God's unchanging character was declared by himself through the prophet Malachi as he declared, for I, the Lord, do not change. And the psalmist ratifies God's immutability by writing, they will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you will are the same, and your years have no end. God's eternality extends into his holiness, for no one, none of us, because of our sin, can match his blamelessness. In Isaiah's vision of God in Isaiah 6, he shouts, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
If you want to reflect on the majesty, the glory of God's holiness, you can go back and listen to Jacob Moore's excellent Sunday evening devotional on this verse here about God's holiness. As you might suspect, God's holiness goes in direct conflict with the sin of humanity, which connects to God's just and gracious character. I love the way that Exodus 34 juxtaposes these characteristics. It reads, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Notice how it highlights God's grace while it simultaneously sanctions his justice. If God were to overlook the sins of the guilty, he would no longer be God. After all, justice is a prerequisite for maintaining one's other qualities. If he were to overlook the guilty, he would no longer be just. One pastor described this fallacious view of God as similar to an unscrupulous janitor. Rather than acknowledging and punishing the sins of the guilty, he simply sweeps it under the rug, ignores it. He hopes that no one will notice it. But this view of God is so unsatisfying. It makes God out to be unjust, unrighteous. It makes him a God who simply hides sin, or even worse, hides from sin, rather than confronting it and destroying it. In short, it makes him a moral coward, which is why it is a faulty understanding. In short, in our evangelism, when we are discussing God, we must declare that he is the creator of all things. All creatures are subject to him. He is holy, but he's also wholly just in punishing our sin. He longs for a righteous people, but he will by no means clear the wicked. Now let's consider man. Genesis 1 and 2 give a beautiful account of creation and highlight God's care and power in it. In Genesis 1.27, we see the pinnacle of his creation, humanity. God created mankind in his own image for the purpose of reflecting his good character, for bringing him honor, glory, and worship. So just as a child owes respect and honor to her parents because they created her, so too we as God's children, as his creation, owe him respect and honor because he gives us life. However, God did not create people simply to submit to him and nothing else. God is a personal God who created humans not only to worship and to serve him, but to have fellowship with him. The boundless unity and love shared in eternity by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit spilled over into God's creation of mankind. But unfortunately, as we quickly learn in Genesis, just a couple of chapters later in Genesis 3, man rebels against God's good rule. This rebellion results in enslavement to sin and results in standing under God's holy wrath and judgment. One of the key issues in understanding salvation is answering the question, what am I saved from? What exactly is it that I'm saved from? Often believers will simply respond, yeah, I'm saved from hell. That's why I turn to Jesus, so that I can be saved from hell. While that is certainly true, it is not the whole truth. Mankind needs to be rescued from two primary things, enslavement to our sin, and we need to be rescued from God's wrath and eternal judgment. This is important to emphasize as we share the gospel with others. They must fundamentally realize that they are enslaved to their sin, that that sin separates them from a holy God, and that apart from some type of salvation that resides in God alone, they will eternally experience the wrath of his judgment for their sin. When Adam rebelled against God, he opened the world to sin, which then in turn resulted in death. Because Adam chose to serve sin rather than God, God gave Adam, and consequently the rest of mankind, as we talked about earlier, over to their sinful lusts and desires. And they experienced the sin that, uh, excuse me, they experienced the corruption that sin brings. If you want uh, just an object lesson and what uh, sin's corrupting nature looks like, you can read the second part of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. You get a good picture of sin's effects on mankind there. Since Adam, the Bible teaches that all mankind, all of us, are enslaved to sin and we are unable to obey God. 
And because of our natural disposition to sin, we choose freely to sin against the Lord and against each other. It's in our nature to sin. Even though we are capable of doing wonderfully good things, because of our sin, God's wrath now rests on all people. And because he's holy, because he's just like we talked about, he is angry with those who rebel against him. Because of his just anger against sin, God will not ultimately allow the sin to go unpunished. Jonathan Edwards describes God's wrath as like a water in a dam. As your sins against God continue to increase, so the waters continue to rise. And the flood of God's wrath is being held back by God himself until a day when they are held back no more and no one may stand against it. If we stop here, then everything up to this point is bad news. In fact, it's probably the worst news that we could ever hear. The God of the universe is against us in our sin and our rebellion, and we have nowhere to hide. In our evangelism, we have to help others see that they are fundamentally sinful and that their sin leads to both physical and spiritual death under God's judgment. We have any questions up to this point before we move on? Lest we remain on the bad news, let's turn to the good news. The only safe shelter from God's wrath is under the wings of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel and salvation and the story of, its, of the Bible itself find its high place in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of God's mercy and grace, he promised to make a way for humanity to be reconciled to himself. The Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. If you remember from the first week when Cole was teaching kind of that brief flyover of the Bible, we see starting in Genesis 3 that the Bible is aching to answer the question, who will save us from our sins? Who is the seed that will crush the head of the serpent? We should feel that tension as we read the Bible. As you read the course of the whole Old Testament, you should feel that aching, that longing. What is it pointing to? What are we waiting for? What are we longing for? What do we ultimately need? Because in our sin, it's bad news. We stand under judgment. And so we look to the promise of that Savior who would deliver his people from their sin. Let's consider a few truths about the Savior. Jesus is the Son of God. He is equal with God. If you want to consider the person of who God is, you can read John chapter 1. You want to think about the work of Christ, you can read Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews. You want to think about just the, the supremacy of Christ, the uniqueness of Christ. You can, you can pick up Colossians chapter 1, read there toward the end of the chapter. The Bible is very explicit about the uniqueness of who Jesus is as the Son of God, as the unique and sufficient sacrifice for our sins. But this Jesus also became a man, as the Gospels display. This Jesus died on a cross in the place of sinners. This Jesus rose physically from the grave in victor victory over the powers of sin, Satan, and death. This Jesus is now exalted at the right hand of the Lord as Lord of heavens and earth. And this Jesus now awaits the day when he will return to judge the living and the dead and where he will establish his kingdom of righteousness upon the earth. As we think about Jesus, Jesus was fully God, fully man. He was sent into the world to live a sinless life so that ultimately he could give of his life as the perfect and ultimate sacrifice on the cross. He bore the sins and shame of an entire world the whole cup of God's wrath against sin so that through trusting and believing in him, we might bear his righteousness. In the greatest switcheroo in all of history, Jesus took our sin and traded it for his righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. You know when you were a kid and 
you needed a permission slip to go on the field trip from your parents. The good news of what Christ has done, it's much better than a permission slip. It's like a promissory note. You see, with a permission slip, you're going on the trip is still contingent on your parents agreeing. It's contingent upon the teacher receiving your permission slip with goodwill, making sure that you didn't forge the signature. It's contingent upon making sure that you don't lose that permission slip. But a promissory note, by contrast, is a guarantee. It's fixed. It's legally binding. Christ's work guarantees the salvation of all who trust in him. It cannot be thwarted by any parents' or teachers' schemes. In fact, even our own rejection of the work does nothing to undermine what Christ has accomplished. So as we consider our sin, as we consider earlier the fact that sin through Adam has passed to all of mankind, we can take heart knowing that through the Lord Jesus, righteousness can pass to those who unite themselves to God in faith. Those who look to Christ, who trust in the sufficiency of his work, and who believe that in and of of themselves, they can do nothing to obtain the Father's favor. But all of that is contingent upon this response. It's not contingent in the sense that, again, we do anything to merit our own salvation, but as we look at what Christ has done, we must respond to that grace. So in the time before Jesus returns and judges the earth, God, in his good grace, graciously offers salvation to those who will repent from their sin and believe in Jesus. To repent means to turn from one's sin and rebellion to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith for forgiveness and salvation. God does not desire nor accept mere outward service. He doesn't accept mere show or religious ritual. Instead, he commands whole hearted devotion in a life that denies themselves and follows after Christ. When we repent of our sin and believe in Christ, God forgives our sins. That means he cancels the record of debt that stands against us because of our sins. He sends his Holy Spirit to renew and transform our lives. And this salvation is a gift of grace that we could never earn nor deserve. But the same grace that empowers Christians to live a life that is pleasing to God is the same grace that gives us sweet assurance that we are his. In our evangelism, we must call sinners to respond to the good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ. Any questions on what Christ has done, that his person, his work, or the response that's required, demanded of believers? see a couple of confused faces that are either don't know how to form their question or who are just thinking. Yeah, Chris. Man, you were the one that was supposed to teach on God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I'm scotch-free from that. No. Yeah, it's, Chris asked an excellent question. The question is, okay, so if God is completely sovereign in salvation, and yet we have to rest completely on his work as well, it sounds like repentance is a work that I'm doing. So God has accomplished this work, and you're telling me to, to turn and to do something. That, doesn't, that seems contradictory. How do we respond to that? I think the Bible teaches that it is, it is the spirit that regenerates our hearts and that then causes us to respond in faith. And so even as we considered with the Israelites in Exodus, they were redeemed out of their bondage and slavery, and their response was to obey. And so too it is for us, for all those who are in Christ, all those who Jesus uh, has saved, the spirit regenerates their hearts, meaning like we talked about from Ezekiel, this heart of stone that's incapable of doing anything on its own, the Spirit regenerates it, turns it into a heart of flesh, 
and then it responds by turning from its sin, trusting in the sufficiency of Christ's work, and giving itself over completely to God. Does that help? Yes, ma'am. I mean, I think about um, uh, the man you know who says, what must I do to be saved? Turn from your sins, trust in Christ. So even though we never want to um, kind of urge or compel somebody to make a false profession of faith, I think if somebody's asking the question, that's probably a sign of the Spirit's genuine work in kind of causing their heart to recognize their sin, to recognize that they're, they're separated from a holy God. Um, and so... I think in responding to them, I would say like, hey, brother, you need to recognize that when you say that you are turning from your sin, that means that you are, you are becoming a new creation in Christ. It means that you are being born again. This old sinful lifestyle, it has now passed away. You are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Believe that. And so if they confess, they say, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I believe that it is only the Lord Jesus and his work that can save me. I think I'd just kind of try to guide them, guide them through that. And then if they do respond positively to that, you absolutely need to, to continue to follow up, help disciple them, help them continue to grow in the faith, bring them into the context of your local church so they can sit under God's word. And then over the course of time, time will reveal whether that profession was genuine or not. No. That can be a means by which somebody is saved, um, but walking an aisle, praying a prayer, uh, sometimes that, coming back to Chris's original question, um, we, when we're so steeped in pragmatism and steeped in kind of a workspace righteousness, um, that's kind of the nature of the human heart. We want to, we want to do the work. Um, we can quickly descend into workspace. And so it's pray this prayer, force them, and then boom, we've got another convert immediately baptize them. I don't think that's always the wisest thing to do. Say again. What's all a fairy tale? Oh, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I think when someone says something along those lines, um, it kind of reflects the hardness of their heart. Um, and so I would just gently try to, to continue to have conversation with them. Um, try to help them see the glorious truth of what the Bible says about God. I think one of the best ways when, when people have a clear kind of hardness of heart to the gospel by responding and kind of jest or whatever um, is to just kind of push back and say like, well, hey, like I would ask you just simply consider, uh, do you want to read the gospel of John with me? And we can consider who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for you. If you can just humble yourself enough to like read and do that with me, um, we'll see what happens. And then if we finish and you still want to say that, well, we'll go from there. Hey, John. So there are many reasons. Is, is there an objective sort of repentance and faith where they're able to acknowledge the Lord? Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I trust in Christ. And then is there a subjective piece that is confirmed by the body of Christ around them that we're going to And what are we looking for? Is it a pure ready to be baptized? Yeah. Yeah. Excellent question. John's question um, is about whether there's kind of an objective and subjective nature to our salvation, objectively being declared righteous by God through their kind of individual repentance, um, confession. Um, but then the subjective piece comes back to, okay, well, does a body of believers, a local church, whatever, have to confirm that? I would respond to that by saying that the, the local church's affirmation of somebody as a Christian doesn't in and of itself render somebody justified. So we need to be clear. The person is justified only by what Christ has done and what the Holy Spirit does in regenerating their hearts and causing them repentance. That is the kind of individual aspect to it. But on the other side of the same coin, I think the Bible is clear that Christians, as we see even in the book of Acts, they are always baptized into 
local churches. And so the Lord, in his kindness, in his, his grace, has seen fit to ordain the local church as the institution that preserves, sanctifies, encourages, builds up Christians until the Lord Jesus returns. And so in that, John, the subjective piece is recognizing that, yes, as somebody, as somebody makes this profession of faith, Matthew 16 says um, that to you, those who have professed that Jesus is the Christ, I give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We could have a whole conversation about the keys of the kingdom of heaven, but simply put, those keys are the authority of the local church to rightly affirm someone's profession of faith. And so I think there is both the objective sense that, yes, the person is righteous because of what Christ has done, but there is, in a sense, a subjective sense where they are to commit themselves to the life of the local church. They are to see whether there's fruit bearing in step with that profession of faith. And then as a body of believers, you've been entrusted with the, the authority to kind of go on record and say, yes, we recognize this person as a follower of Christ so that when they go out into the world and represent Christ, we put our stamp on them. And that's not a definitive stamp, but one that the little church says. No. Any other thoughts or, or questions? They're great questions. As we wrap up, um, I just want to talk about uh, just a couple more things. Um, one, some of this comes back to some of your questions. So, um, you know, part of, part of being able to share the gospel is also being able to recognize false gospels. Um, as Christians, we need to be able to discern when what someone says or how someone responds to the gospel is outside of bounds with what the scripture teaches. In Galatians 1, Paul says that I am astonished, writing to the church, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. One of the interesting things about what Paul is doing here is that he assumes that these believers in Christ that he's writing to at the churches in Galatia know the true gospel. He says you have received the gospel, and so you should be able to discern what the false gospels are so that as we have conversation or as, as somebody is reflecting the name of Christ, but doesn't have fruit bearing with that step, or who preaches a gospel that isn't what the Bible would teach, we need to be able to respond to that. We need to be able to correct that. We need to be able to refute it. We need to be able to recognize the different types of gospels, some of which we've talked about this morning. You can do it if you just put your mind to it, the self-righteous gospel. I'm okay, you're okay. Truth is relative gospel. Jesus will make your life better, the healthy, wealthy, and wise gospel. Or we just need to make the world a better place, the feed, clothe, build, and recycle gospel. So part of our, our gospel proclamation is being able to respond. And again, we, we can't just give you kind of a simple, here's a response for every single thing. Even as the brothers and sisters have asked great questions this morning, we need to, to ultimately go to this book we need to, to, to constantly uh, submit ourselves to its authority. We need to read it. We need to study it because it's sufficient for all of life and godliness. It's sufficient for sharing the truth and it's sufficient for knowing what the true gospel says. It's clear, it's understandable. And so as we read it, as we come to understand clearly what the gospel teaches, the more we submit ourselves to it, the more we're gonna be able to quickly identify, oh yeah, that's a false gospel. So as we close, I want to consider two brief points of assurance and application, prayer and power. It should go without saying that we are fully reliant upon God for effective evangelism. We must express full reliance upon God in prayer for him to act, for him to soften hearts, for him to give us wisdom and discernment in our speech, for him to save lost souls. We are bound by what God will do. And yet, we are also enabled by God to petition him for the sake of the lost. 
like Paul in Ephesians, who asked for prayer from the church, that words might be given to him in opening his mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. We too must do the same. Or like Paul in writing to the church at Colossae, we must pray that God would open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. I think one practical way that you can pray beyond just kind of some of these general prayers that God would open up a door for effective evangelism is to think about specific non-Christians in your life, whether it's in your workplace or uh, your neighborhood, wherever it may be. Think of specific non-Christians and pray specific prayers for them. So for instance, I have in in my prayer journal a, a couple of different ones. I have a friend of mine from college who I think would profess to be a Christian, but his life just is not in step with what Christ followers are, how Christ followers are to live. There's, there seems to be no fruit evident um, of the Spirit. And so I pray daily that the Lord would prick his conscience by the Spirit, that he would feel conviction for his sin, that he would be driven to open up his Bible and to read it so that his sin would be exposed and that he would look to God for salvation. I have another friend who grew up as a Christian, but now adamantly denies and opposes the faith. He actually resents his Christian upbringing. And so I pray to God that he would help this person come to an end of themselves, that he would recognize that genuine Christianity is not rote tradition, but it is life, that the Lord would cause his mind to think often about life and death and to seek out wise Christian counsel. I have another couple of friends who who are Mormons, I pray often for them that even as they have their, their Book of Mormon, but they also read the, the, the King James Version of the Bible, that as they read the Bible, that the Lord would cause their minds to see who Jesus truly is, to open their eyes to behold who he is and recognize that he is the only way to God, that he is the, the true truth. And so this is just a, a quick example of, of ways that you can think about people in your own life and pray specific prayers for those specific people in their specific circumstances. Finally, as we close, we think about the power of the gospel and how it lies not in our presentation, but in God's ability to bring the dead to life. Even as Brad preached a few weeks ago from 1 Thessalonians, we must remember that God has chosen those who are his and that the gospel comes in the power of the Holy Spirit in full conviction. The word of the cross may be folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it has the power to bring those who hear to faith. Just think about in Romans, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. God's word is sufficient to save lost souls. One of my favorite passages on evangelism, uh, Mitzi kind of hinted at this a little bit earlier, but one of my favorite passages on evangelism is in Acts 18, when the Lord visits Paul in a vision and says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my two people. If you notice that that verse, it has two purpose clauses. One, for I am with you. God is with us. We can walk in that comfort in our evangelism. And second, for I have many in this city who are my people. Friends, the game is rigged. (laughs) The Lord knows who are his. He has called them from before the foundation of the world. And yet, he looks to us and he says, I've chosen you to be heralds, to come and proclaim that message to the lost. Gosh, what an honor. What a privilege. God didn't need us to do that. He's, He's already chosen them. And yet here he is telling Paul, hey, go into the city and you can have confidence because I'm with you, but you can also have confidence because I already have people in there who don't know yet that they need me, but through your gospel proclamation are gonna realize that their sin has separated them from me and that they need to look to Jesus for their salvation. And so as we go out and we share the gospel, we can go in that confidence. We can go in the confidence knowing that God is with us and that he has already saved those who go before us. Friends, as we close, I I just want to remind you that oftentimes the gospel, preaching the gospel, does not go as planned. For any of you, I I know myself, I 
went into a conversation, evangelistic conversation, anticipating sharing certain things, and it just did not go that way. And so this morning, I hope, if anything, you've been caused to reflect upon the grace that's been given to you, you've recognized how much you've been saved from, and that that has compelled you by love to at least have the desire to share with others, and that too, walking away from here, you are committed to more clearly understanding and knowing the gospel for yourself so that as you go about, you're able to clearly, competently, effectively, winsomely declare that message to others. Any final questions before we close in prayer? I love the uncomfortable silence. It's fun being up here because I get to see you in your seats, and some of you aren't bothered by it. See, some of you kind of. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll head over for the corporate worship gathering. Oh, God, we give you thanks for the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Would you help us to never forget those truths? God, would you cause our hearts to never grow cold to the salvation that is ours? And may that that grace that's been given compel us to share with others. God, help Christ to be sweet to us this day. Help us to be effective, competent as we share the gospel with others. And God, we rest assured knowing that you are always with us and that you will accomplish the plans that you have set forth from before the foundations of the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.